Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 26, Thief of Time, and Death and What Comes Next. But let's start by talking about the short story that we're covering today, Death and What Comes Next, which was written in 2002 for the now defunct online puzzle game Time Hunt. This is not a game I am familiar with. I would have been 12 when this came out, so I wasn't playing online puzzle games at the time. According to my most recent birth search, I was two. You were two, yeah. So you also probably weren't playing online puzzle games. Apparently, the story contains a hidden word puzzle that interacts with the game. I couldn't figure it out, and there's nothing online that tells me what the hidden word puzzle is. So those of you who maybe played the game or are maybe more familiar with what this is supposed to be, please tweet at us. I actually really want to know what the hidden word puzzle is in this because I am fascinated. But it's supposed to provide like a code word for the game, I guess. Anyway. It's a very short, short story, which makes sense considering its context. It's only four pages in my book. I don't know. Are you reading it from a blink of the screen or from somewhere else? Okay. Yeah, a digital, like, EPUB version of it. So it pretty much translates. Yeah, I think you could also find it on LSpace. But, yeah, it's only four pages in my version. It's very short. But basically, it's... The story of this discussion, this deathbed discussion between death and an unnamed philosopher in which the philosopher attempts to use multiverse theory, quantum mechanics, to argue that death is not a certainty. There are some worlds in which he dies and some worlds in which he wasn't. And then he kind of alludes to the Schrodinger's cat of it all. Until something's observed, you can't know like what state it's naturally in. And Death, of course, is both amused and unamused by this argument. What are your first thoughts about this story, Nigel? I quite like this, actually. I think in general, all of the like shorter Discworld fiction has been really good at expanding on kind of themes that have been in the background of a lot of stuff. There's a reason we're reading this with Thief of Time, but this is something that started out in, in Jingo, right? With the, the quantum uncertainty that happens when Vimes goes down the wrong leg of the the trousers of time. Yes, the trousers of time. And Death yeah. even says that because of quantum, in Fifth Elephant, Death says because of quantum, he now has to show up when someone might die. That's why he's there with, with Vimes, when Vimes is running away from the werewolves. Yeah. So I like that it's kind of this continuation, and that like it actually addresses the fact that like this is real world like like metaphysics and stuff. And being like, yeah, we know, but then it's also like it implicitly deals with the fact that like this is not the real world and none of it really makes sense. Death understands like quantum and particle physics about as much as I do, so I can really empathize with that. (laughs) I love how annoyed he is because he's like, it's it's space. It's seeing space. Humans look up, they see space and they want to like figure it out. They want to expand their brains to fill the space. He's so annoyed, though. He's just like, oh, my God, one of these. <laughs> well, I mean, as we find as we find out in um, Thief of Time, he's kind of the only horseman who's actually doing his job. So, like, the fact that there's extra work being made for him because of people being unsure of things. 
there is like the Schrodinger of it all, which death directly references at the end, the whole thing about a cat in the box and how things aren't, you know, they're not fixed until they're observed. But even at the beginning, the philosopher says, I'm both dead and not dead, which seems like a pretty direct reference to to the Schrodinger's box paradox. Are you familiar with Schrodinger's paradox? I mean, I still don't fully understand Schrodinger's thing. It's, I, it's also my belief that, like, well, the universe observes it, even if there's not, like, a conscious human observing it, so I don't really know. Yeah. No, like, there's there's buildings in Trinity that are um, named after Schrodinger, because he, he taught there. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we've got a statue outside of one of the buildings that, like, Everyone calls it the anal bead sculpture, but it's meant to be like atoms and <laughs> apples, I think is what the sculpture is called. So like, yeah, we're we're a bit familiar with, with Schrodinger in Ireland. Uh, I think I learned about it in a John Green book in Will Grayson, Will Grayson. Oh, I haven't read that one. Yeah, it's the one he did with David Levithan because like they go and see this, I think, fictional band called the Maybe Dead Cats. And then he talks about how that like is a reference to Schrodinger, and I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. I don't really understand quantum, and that's like, I think the the best place to start a fantasy story from. You're building off of that technology and science so advanced it's indistinguishable from magic that Arthur C. Clarke talked about, and then just being like, well, what if we take this into the future? It's always good. It's the what if experiment of speculative fiction. Like, what if? We extrapolated this idea. What if we took this idea to its logical extreme, right? It's it's very much a linchpin of science fiction as a genre. And it's interesting to see those precepts put into fantasy because we usually don't see them in fantasy as much as we do in, in science fiction because we tend to think of fantasy as something that belongs in the past or that has to do with mythology. And so it is pretty great to see it addressed here and addressed in Thief of Time, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Mm. What did you think about the philosopher's argument about the multiverse and death's response? It's a very, like, like it doesn't brook any argument. Would you kill your wife? No. Well, if you say that, then, like, well, there has to, if you talk about this multiverse where everything is possible, there has to be a universe where you do, like, just decide to randomly kill your wife. And then it's like, well, we're just not going to talk about it anymore then. I like the idea of a logical certainty of heaven and hell, though, in this multiverse. Like, the idea that there is a universe where everything has gone right. Yeah. And there's a universe where everything has gone wrong. That's the, the one thing I've highlighted from this. The concept you put before me proves the existence of two hitherto mythical places. Somewhere, there is a world where everyone made the right choice, the normal choice. The choice to maximize the happiness of their fellow creatures. Of course, that also means that somewhere else is the smoking remnant of the world where they did not. And I think that's a really interesting way of visualizing heaven and hell, especially because we've talked about death not being like explicitly like a Christian religious thing, you know, where it's not like the Catholic idea of heaven or whatever. And especially because like once you get into the, the monks and like people with lifetimers that you can just flip over and they reincarnate, makes it feel much more like karmic cycles. Well, I mean, but death has established that what happens after death depends quite a bit on what you believe during life. Oh, yeah. So, like, for some people, it might be more karmic. For some people, it might be more 
of like the Omnian version of what happens after death. For some people, they wander through that desert forever, right? So it just kind of depends on how you lived and what you believed in a lot of ways. But it also, to me, really highlights this intersection between faith and science. This idea that that there are things that religion tries to explain that can also be explained by science. And there's sort of this place where they meet. Mm. We can explain heaven and hell in a religious context, but we can also explain heaven and hell in a scientific context, the idea of the multiverse. So it, it is a very interesting idea. I've been watching a lot of a show called Evil lately that kind of grapples with that idea. Like, where does science and religion meet? Like, how does science and religion try to describe unexplainable phenomena? Is that the one with Mike Coulter? And so that's, that's something that really stuck out for me. Yes. I've been meaning to watch that. Is it good? Yeah, it's made by the Kings. It's very good. I uh, actually talked about it on the last episode of Monkey that just came out on Monday, uh, the Monday that we're recording this. It's very interested in that idea. And I think that this story is also very interested because death is like such a mythical figure. And he basically what it's emphasizing here is that religion and science are basically two different ways of trying to explain the same thing, which is reality. Yeah. I feel like the humor in this is pretty good. Just like the back. Yeah. And f- I really like the humor, the back and forth of like, was that sarcasm? Actually, no, I am impressed and intrigued. And then later on. We've certainly escaped from outmoded superstitions. Well done, said Death. That's the spirit. I just wanted to check. <laughs> yeah, and the ending, of course, is like he references Schrodinger and again, again, and he says, the point is, is that it's in both states as long as you're not observing it. But if I observe it, then its state becomes fixed and I see you. That's really chilling. Yeah, it is. But it's funny to hear Death apply that logic to himself right that he is the observer and if he observes you then your existence becomes fixed one way or the other everybody to death is either alive or dead have you read the stephen king short story the jaunt i haven't read much stephen king short fiction i'd recommend the jaunt it's a fantastic short story it really takes the fact that like this is a short story and you're not getting any more of it and like really like just throws that in your face uh, but just Skeleton Crew as a whole, that's the collection it's from, is really good. But this is, like, set in a world where humankind has developed, like, transport to Mars. And this technology is called the jaunt. When you go into the jaunt station, they, like, put you to sleep. Okay. They send you to, to Mars, then. As they're going in, like, the framing story is this father telling his children how uh, jaunt technology was, like, created in an attempt to like calm them down. And so he was like saying about how the guy experimented with mice and whatever. And then he like one of the mice came out and it was like much, much older than when had gone in and all this stuff. And so then they go into the jaunt machine and then they're all asleep. And then we cut to Mars and there's like some sort of commotion. And like his son, his like young son has come out and his, his son is like incredibly wizened. The son like stayed awake he didn't somehow inhale the gas that like put them to sleep in the anesthetic way not the euthanasia way and he like saw this whatever like sanity shattering thing out like in the cosmos as they went and now his mind is like irreversibly broken and i don't know it's such a really good thing and just the way that like death says like oh i see you put me in mind 
No, no. I mean, that I, that totally makes sense to me. And it makes sense that you would make those connections as well. All right. There are no footnotes in this story <laughs> at all, which is a little disappointing. What is, what's the thing that made you laugh the most in this? I, I think it's just the way that the philosopher just really like stops banging on about the multiverse when he's put, put forward that like there is a universe where he's killed his wife. Yeah. Just be like, that's so, that's so antithetical to who he is as a person that he's like, I actually, you know what? I don't believe in the multiverse as much anymore. Well, it's funny that people are like, I believe this cool science thing until they realize like what the implications of it are. I feel like that's true for a lot of science where you're like, here's a theory. Isn't it cool? Oh, wait, <laughs> like this means something else. Totally. The thing that made me laugh, the all the jokes about quantum, anytime somebody makes a joke about quantum in a Terry Pratchett book, I'm going to laugh. It happened in Thief of Time a few times as well, and in, of course, The Fifth Elephant. But I love the, there was a sigh from death. Oh dear, one of those, he thought. Is this going to be about quantum again? He hated dealing with philosophers. They always tried to wriggle out of it. <laughs> Is this going to be about quantum again? <laughs> He's resigned himself to a lifetime of dealing with these quantum people see just like you i don't understand quantum very well either i just understand the edges of it so to me to retreat into a is this going to be about quantum again is just very funny uh, I, I just i love how like a lot of this podcast is us going i don't understand like insert technology yeah <laughs> like like we, we don't understand how cameras work we don't understand how particle physics works Maybe we should have had a third host that was like a STEM person. <laughs> oh my god. They could be our resident they they could be our token nerd. Our token our token technology nerd. I'm not sure what made me think. Like it was kind of I don't think there was anything specific. It's just like that it's kind of a, a continuation of a lot of the stuff that we've like talked about before with quantum uncertainty. It's not like we're invested in this philosopher's life either. Right. I mean, he doesn't even get a name. Yeah, exactly. So, like... Don't even know if he's, like, an Ephebian philosopher or not. He could just be a random philosopher. Like, like with Vimes, when he hears, like, all of his co-workers and friends dying because of Quantum, or, like, you know, like, he can hear, hear it because of Quantum, like, that's important. This does not feel as important. Oh, absolutely. It's more of, like, a thought experiment, which is the whole point of the Schrodinger's cat is that that's a thought experiment. So it makes sense. The thing that made me think was actually when Death said, let me put forward another suggestion, that you are nothing more than a lucky species of ape that is trying to understand the complexities of creation via a language that evolved in order to tell one another where the ripe fruit was. I really thought that was interesting because we do talk sometimes about how language, it is a tool, like any other tool, and it has limits. And so the idea of language evolved for a very specific purpose, but now we're trying to do something with it that it was not intended for originally. We're trying to understand the complexities of the universe. We're trying to shape them into words. And when you put words to a thing, they're always going to be inadequate or incomplete. You know, I'm getting very much into like Derrida here, but like... Oh, right. Yes. I'm, I'm getting very much into that, like the limits of language and play and all of that stuff. And I don't want to go too far there because Derrida makes my head hurt. But it is an interesting thought to be like, you evolved language to do very specific practical things to stay alive. 
Now you're trying to use that same language to describe quantum, right? Like it's it's very much an interesting point on Death's part. Oh, what was the name of the lecturer at Unseen University who thought like the whole point of the universe of evolution and life in the universe was to eventually like put him in it? Wasn't it like the professor of personalized anthropology or something like that? Something like that. Yes, yeah, some ridiculous name like that. Yeah, but I remember it's a it's a footnote. I remember that where it was like that's actually what most people believe. They just don't make it an academic theory. Yeah, that like like this sort of human centricism. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like there's more things in heaven and hell than are dreamt of in your philosophies, Horatio. But at the same time, human beings, at least that we know, are the only people who really give a shit that we exist in the cosmos. Like, tardigrades have no concept entanglement or superposition or anything like that and they're like getting on just fine right and so it's like a lot of our uncertainty about our place in the universe comes from the sole fact that like we're evolved enough to like conceive of it the more we know the more uncertain and out of control we feel which is something that comes up in thief of time as well that's something I've been thinking recently because, like, people are talking about, like, the looming threat of nuclear war. And I'm not trying to, like, minimize that in any way, but I'm also, like, the only reason that we're afraid of nuclear war or, like, the effects of climate change is because, like, this is a thing that we did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we should continue this conversation in Thief of Time because, like, I already, like, thought of, like, three things in Thief of Time that backs up your point. I love making an unfounded point on a book and then having it be like oh well the source actually like backs this up and like that that was four years of college for me i would like to find out what comes after death and what comes next which is which is thief of time this was published in 2001 thief of time is the 26th discworld novel and the fifth and final entry in the death branch of the discworld so we are also finishing off this particular branch this is the last one. This is their fall in left, right, and center. Yeah, it was almost like at this point he wanted to finish off some specific branches so he could move on to making some new ones, which we're going to see starting to sprout more and more as we uh, go through the the back half, I guess, of the Discworld series. Obviously, death still appears in other books, and obviously we're going to see some of these other characters in other books. Although, I... I actually don't know if this is the last one we see Susan in or not, because I can't remember another book with Susan in it. Well, I'm not going to Google it because I don't want to spoil it. Right. Yeah. But this is the last of this particular strand of the Discworld novels, because I think that it actually does try to wrap some stuff up in some interesting ways that we'll talk about. But this is also, incidentally, the last book that Josh Kirby designed the cover for in the first edition run. So those of you who are familiar with Josh Kirby's work, he illustrated most of the first editions of these books. This is the last one he illustrated. I'm not sure why. Just a fun fact. And it was also shortlisted for the 2002 Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel. So there was a lot of attention on this when it first came out. It is also the first Discworld book that I ever read. In a nice concatenation of things, both to do with your experience with the series and the nature of time being out of sync. Yeah, I was given this book by a friend in middle school who basically was like, I just read this book. You need to read it. 
you would really like it. So I read it. And of course, the nature of Discworld novels is, is that you can pretty much pick up any one of them and sort of get your bearings fairly quickly. I didn't know anything about the history of these characters, but I loved the idea of death being an anthropomorphic personification. I wanted to date Susan. You know, I I wanted to live in this world that was equal parts complex and funny at the same time. And then I found out that there were so many other books that I could read. I mean, I found out that my library had at least 15 of them. And so I was constantly checking them out. I read them all out of order, as I've explained before. But it was it all started with Thief of Time. Quick summary. High up in the mountains of the Rim, the history monks watch and tweak the passage of history, still reeling from a time-shattering event. However, the auditors took notice of the event and tried to replicate it, convincing a strange clockmaker to create a device that will trap time, ending life on the disc. Susan must team up with Lopsang, a mysterious novice, to avert the apocalypse. Nigel, what were your first thoughts on this novel? What does Terry Pratchett have against nougat? I don't know, but Susan fucking hates nougat. It comes up so many times. <laughs> yeah, that's like one of those things where it's like Victor Hugo knows an awful lot about the Parisian sewers and he's going to tell you. Herman Melville learned a lot of facts about whales and he's going to tell you. Terry Pratchett fucking hates nougat. Yeah, which is odd because nougat's fine. I mean, I'm not going to say it's like the best thing I've ever had, but it's fine. People are allowed to, like, dislike what they don't like. I found Skeleton Crew. Would you like to hear the end of it? Yes, please. Beside Ricky, his sister still mercifully slept. The thing that had been his son bounced and writhed on its jaunt couch. A twelve-year-old boy with a snow-white fall of hair and eyes which were incredibly ancient. The cornea has gone a sickly yellow. Here was a creature older than time masquerading as a boy, and yet it bounced and writhed with a kind of horrid, obscene glee and at its choked lunatic cackles the jaunt attendants drew back in terror. Some of them fled, although they had been trained to cope with just such an unthinkable eventuality. The old young legs twitched and quivered. Claw hands beat and twisted and danced on the air. Abruptly, they descended, and the thing that had been his son began to claw at its face. Longer than you think, Dad, it cackled. Longer than you think. Held my breath when they gave me the gas. Wanted to see. I saw. I saw. Longer than you think. Cackling and screeching, the thing on the jaunt couch suddenly clawed its own eyes out. Blood gouted. The recovery room was an aviary of screaming noises now. Longer than you think, Dad. I saw. I saw. Long jaunt. Longer than you think. It said other things before the jaunt attendants were finally able to bear it away, rolling its couch swiftly away as it screamed and clawed at the eyes that had seen the unseeable forever and ever. It said other things, and then it began to scream but Mark Oates didn't hear it because by then he was screaming himself. And now that I read that, I think this is like like the dark side of the abbot of the history yeah, monks. Yeah, I was about to say, that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, so like, we do have a diversion for me, like spending 15 minutes looking for that book in at the very back of a small shelf underneath my desk, like three <laughs> rows in. I think that we should start with the revelation of this book it finally answers the question of why chronology on the disc is so fucking weird it's because at one point time shattered and the history monks and lutzi had to basically put the whole thing back together and there are seams and there are inconsistencies and there's time borrowed from other times and centuries folded together like sam vimes going to the fucking past i don't know 
now that we have like officially this is time traveling people and this is how they do it and this is why time is fucky on the disc sam vimes is in the past i'm still convinced it answers the question about Omnia that we've been asking for for a long time. Susan actually specifically references it because she goes and she looks at the history book and she realizes all of the problems. And she's like, it looks like there were two centuries and Omnia folded into one and nobody noticed. And so we keep asking, mm. when did small gods happen? The answer is, it doesn't fucking matter because time doesn't make sense. But it's amazing that Susan talks about all of these errors Errors in the history of God, I guess. But, like, they never bring up Jelly Baby and the fact that, like, for ages, it was just repeating the same cycle of however long over and over again with Dios becoming... Uh, Dios also going through that, that time thing becoming more and more insane, like the son Ricky in the jaunt. I feel like this is a missed opportunity that they should have mentioned Jelly Baby, but also I am convinced that the time polder in Jelly Baby was caused by this. I think yeah. it was an, an issue or an error of time because time was shattered and they had to kind of pick up the pieces and make them fit the best they could. But like like that like that's the thing, like you say it's a missed opportunity. Like in Jelly Baby, we actually had confirmed, like in the text, here's something weird that's happening with time. Whereas in Small Gods, like Omnia was behind the times just because of outdated religious beliefs and dogma. Right. But at the same time we were like wait, how can he be talking to these philosophers and then a hundred years go by? Or like when, you know what I mean? Like, and then how is it a religion that's this huge yeah. after only, like, when does this happen? And it turns out none of those questions matter. Like Lutzea says, like, it doesn't matter when the glass clock was made. That's a question that has no meaningful answer because you can't, it doesn't, time was broken, right? They had to like fix it. What do you think about this answer to these questions and do you think this was something terry pratchett was thinking about the whole time or do you think it was something that he came up with when he realized how messed up his chronology was i think it's the latter i mean it's hard to know it's impossible to know yeah i mean we're not terry pratchett and terry pratchett is dead so we can't exactly ask him if there were some sort of interview in a magazine or something that'd be easier to like go off of but for me as well like i i feel like the early discworld books felt unfocused in a way that, like, mm -hmm. they aren't now. And especially, like, things we've said where it's, like, death doesn't feel like death in The Color of Magic, and Granny Weatherwax doesn't feel like Granny Weatherwax in Equal Rights. Like, it's still getting its footing. Like, what what number book was Pyramids? It's number seven, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, it's it's pretty early on in the thing. So, so like, it would make sense if it were just, like, something that he came up with to resolve the fact that it was, you know, that it was, um, everything was kind of weird. And you're right. Like, originally, it seemed more like he was playing around in this universe and it didn't have to make sense. And now he seems much more invested, maybe not in continuity, because I don't think he is invested in continuity, because this whole book is about how it's the continuity doesn't work. But I think he is invested in trying to make these stories fit together in some way. And so that, I think, is what's happening in Thief of Time. But it, it doesn't feel like an after effect to me. It doesn't feel like, oh, let me hurriedly put this explanation together. It feels very organic. Like, of course this is what happened. Like, how could it have happened otherwise on the disc? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's true. And it doesn't, like, it's not against what I think either. Like, I feel like, there was, like the first couple books are really unstable and whatever and then after a while he thought of this mm -hmm. and then started seeding it into the books 
he's not really as concerned with chronology as I think he is internal right. consistency within the disc. You just have to look at the uh, the Discord from the outside and try and like understand it. And as long as it makes sense within itself, then it, I think like the logic is that that's okay. Like if things are weird in it, that's fine. But as long as it you can like it's weird because it's like within these bounds or parameters. Well, and there's this idea that like the disc is inherently a place that doesn't always make sense. And so it would make sense in a weird paradoxical way that their timeline wouldn't make sense. I appreciate that. I also like that we're picking up the thread of the history monks, which were introduced in Small Gods. So we we have seen... Oh, yeah, we do see... Lute yeah, in, let's say in Small in, Gods. Uh, small and so he... In fact, that is directly mentioned when the, the abbot says, didn't you explicitly disobey my orders in Omnia? And Lutze says, I did what needed... I, I did what should not have been done, so somewhere else something that should have happened would happen. And so the idea that he was in Omnia to do that thing to make something mm. else happen, like to a plan that was not apparent in Small Gods, I think that's very interesting. Yeah, but now I'm curious as to what actually like was meant to happen, you know, like Yeah. Yeah. What's so drastically affected by the outcome of Small Gods that like Lutze needed to be there? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it kind of makes sense if Omnia is such a huge religion on the disc that it would affect a lot of different things. But you're right. You're absolutely right. Maybe without him, Vorbis would have made Omnia into like a uh, a fascist, a religious fascist state that would have conquered the disc and killed everyone. Like, you don't know. Yeah. I appreciate that this book just doubles down on the fact that Terry Pratchett seems to be obsessed with the name Lobsang. I was wondering if you were going to bring that up because, yeah, you've talked about that before on this podcast. Because, like, when I was talking about karmic cycles, I also thought about the Long Earth series, which I think, I don't know, I'm looking for the first book. I had it recently, so maybe I brought it inside. Like, it's it's over there. So I'll get it and you can see it, although our listeners won't be able to see it. Because podcasting is a visual medium. We've talked about this on Monkey Off by Backlog. Here it is. Um, yeah, there it is. is. I think this is a first edition copy. Maybe we should read the Long Earth series after we finish Discworld. Yeah, but like like that where it's like you go to different versions of the Earth where like each step you take out from the original, like something has changed slightly or there's like in the book they get to, it's I think it's like a hundred steps uh, anti-clockwise where it's like th there's just a void. And this is like an Earth where like it, where it's the possibility that like Earth never formed or was destroyed by something like entirely, and I think that's like that's in keeping I think with Terry Pratchett's theory of the multiverse and like you just go further and further out and like these different things happen and then like you get to a point where everything is perfect or everything is bad. That's my thoughts on Lobsang. What do you think about the history monks and their self-imposed mission to keep history going slash fix time? In fiction, I always kind of hate, like, people who, who just assume they have the right to do something, you know, where it's like, you've interfered in this and you need to die or we need to, like, take something from you. And it just pisses me off most of the time because it's like, well, what right other than the one you've taken for yourself? But I feel like the history monks, they're, like, doing somewhat of a good thing. I really enjoy the, like, blend of, of like, martial arts along with, like like, time slicing. I think that's really cool. The time slicing scenes are fascinating in this book. 
Yeah. Like, I've never seen anything like that in a fantasy world. Yeah. And, like, like the spinners and stuff, they can, like, store, like, uh, the procrastinators, how they store time. Like, that scene where um, Lutze and Lobsang are running towards the hall with the spinners, and they're talking about, like, how they can hear, like, time escaping, and then the procrastinators go past... I really yeah. like that scene. Like, it's so fascinating to read. This whole, like, order of history monks as a concept is fascinating. Yeah, I agree with you that, like, one of my reactions to the history monks is always going to be, well, who chooses what history happens, right? Mm. Like, who who is in charge of making that decision? I had that same reaction to Loki as well. Like, the Time Bureau, what whatever it's time called. The one that authority. Yeah, the Time Variance Authority. I was like, well, according to who? Like, who decides which history happens? Who decides which, you know, variants are variants, you know? And I think that's always a good question. I get the impression, though, from this, and I could be wrong, that the history monks were literally the only people who could pick up the pieces. (laughs) Like, there was nobody Mm. else who could or would do it, right? Like, death isn't going to fix time, that you know, that's just not his job. You know, war's not going to fix time. Old man trouble is not going to fix time, right? And so it's, you know, it kind of fell to them, and they kind of did the best that they could. Yeah. No, definitely. Like, and it seems to me that they're trying to just reset things as close as possible to what they were before, and yeah. that it's kind of impartial. So, like, yay, we got an impartial governing body. Yeah. Although Lutze does specifically tell Lop saying that he doesn't interfere anymore like he used to with small gods, etc. But he yeah. doesn't do that anymore because he never felt like it was right. Like he yeah. he seems to think that it's good to balance time, to like use the spinners, make sure that time, the flow of time isn't disrupted, right? But mm. he doesn't seem to agree with the idea that they should be out in the world making decisions for people. Yeah, no, like, I I like that their whole thing is founded on that people should have agency. Uh, Like, even if they're not aware of it. Because, like, when you say to someone, like, you should be able to make this choice, you're telling them that they have agency, but the history monks are in the background being like, well, we're allowing the conditions for you to be able to have that choice to make a choice. Of all of the versions of this I've seen with the Umbrella Academy or Loki or anything like that, this seems to be the best version, like you said, because they seem committed to trying to be as impartial as possible. But hmm. you know what I mean? But at some at some point, they're still making decisions, right, about yeah. how history goes. I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted. <laughs> A lot of like time travel fiction especially today and i think like time travel fiction today really deals with the fact that like like supposed supposed ethics and morality of being able to time travel and i think that's just like cuz we're very much in crisis all the time so like the the idea of being able to prevent a crisis is appealing yeah i appreciate that this doesn't this doesn't deal with that at all because I'm so sick of like, oh, if you could go back in time and kill baby Hitler, would you? The only like somewhat entertaining response I've heard to that is they posed the question on an episode of the King cast talking about the dead zone. Have you like seen or read the dead zone? I have not. 
I've um, heard of film, it, obviously. The film has Christopher Walken. Great. But he has, like, this precognition ability. And they were like, well, what if you... You know, like, the, the book is kind of like, well, if you were back in 1930s Germany, you know, would you... And you had a precognition thing about Hitler. Would you try and take him out? And one of the hosts is like, yeah, look, if I was around baby Hitler, I'd drop kick that baby into a fucking cement mixer. And I was like, this is the only fun response to it. Because you get bogged down so much in, like, should we stop the JFK assassination, like Umbrella Academy Season 2, that it, it takes all the fun out of, or even 11-22-63, to go back to King. But no, it takes all the fun out. And this book is like, no, this is just pure fun. We're not bogging down with any uh, ethics shit. Like, our ethics is, like, in the background. But it's not, It's never the focus. I agree. I, I don't think this book is primarily interested in the ethics of what they're doing because especially our our connection to what the History Monks is doing is through Lutze. I mean, we see other History Monks, we see the abbot, but the primary person who's talking about their goals is Lutze, who is very practical, right? He's not very interested in the morality of it because he's more concerned with making sure time happens and the nitty gritty of it. And how do you, you know what I mean? He's more interested in the mechanics than he is in the philosophy behind it. He leaves the philosophy up to the abbot, right? That's like a big part of their relationship. Mm. But I have to say the rogue cut of days of future past, which is an X-Men film, the original cut's not very good, but the rogue cut is pretty good. And there is a scene where they're trying to do something similar, where they're going back in time to prevent something horrible from happening. So that way there's not this bad future that happens. And some of the people in that scene actually say, yeah, but like some of us were born after that thing happens. And there's no guarantee that if you go back and fix this thing that we would ever exist. And do you think you have the right to like basically unalive us, basically unborn us? And so I think that that's also an interesting question, too. Like, when you mess around with time like that, you are actually making an ethical stance. Have you seen the show Timeless? I haven't, but Sam has watched it pretty religiously. Yeah, I really enjoyed Timeless. Like, it does it, it, it does have an awful lot of, like, interesting propositions for, like, alternate histories and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, the way that they change, it's it's kind of like... I don't know, I feel like we could construct a sliding scale of, like, how much a piece of time travel media engages with trying to retcon or make something happen in the past. You know, where, like, Doctor yeah. Who is very loosey-goosey. Thief of Time is pretty much not at all season two of the Umbrella Academy, eleven twenty-two sixty-three. Anything that deals with going back and killing Hitler is up on the far end. Mm-hmm. And Timeless would be somewhere around the middle where it's like, yeah... Going back in time and, like, changing things changes the real world, but not, like, in a future dystopia kind of way. It's just, like, there was an episode where they go back to Nazi Germany, and they meet with Ian Fleming, and then they come back, and it's, like, the Bond movies are different. And I was like, okay, yeah, okay, that's a fun uh, ripple effect. I think the other thing about Thief of Time, though, is that it's not really about going back to fix things. No. Because there is no back to go to. Because you don't go back and forth in this universe. It's just you stitch it together and hope it holds, right? <laughs> it was already broken before they fixed it anyway. Like, the, the description of time as being, like, the universe constantly ending and then, like, recreating itself in every second. Like, in every instance the universes were born. Yeah, so that gets us to Wen, the Eternally Surprised, who is the founder of the History Monks. 
what did you think about Wen as a character and his philosophy of surprise being the only appropriate reaction to the universe? It's genuinely, I feel like, a philosophy that I could, like, believe in or, you know, like, yeah. a, a subscribe to. Because, like, most of the time I'm surprised by everything going on around me. Understanding that the universe is, like, fundamentally surprising at its very basic foundations, I think is probably the right way to go. So I really like that. I also just like the name when the eternally su- surprised. I love the beginning of the book. Uh, the first line is, according to the first scroll of when the eternally surprised. And I remember reading that the first time and being like, yes, I want to see who this person is. <laughs> and we do find out who the person is. I think all the philosophy about the universe being destroyed and rebuilt and this idea of like, when does the present stop being the present? Like, how do you measure where the past starts and where the future begins, right? Because if the present exists, it also means it can't exist because if you think about it, it's already the past, right? It's never, you know what I mean? Like all that philosophy I found extremely interesting. Like how do you actually measure something like the present? And so the idea of like, it doesn't matter. You should just always be surprised. Basically saying you're asking the wrong question. It's more about our reaction to it and less about how to measure it. I think there's an awful lot in this book about, like, expecting outcomes and how I think expecting outcomes alters the outcome. You know, like, like the, the phrase of watch pot never boils. And, like, that's mm-hmm. kind of this how that relates to Schrodinger's cat, where it's like, you're supposed to just go and observe the cat and then it is either alive or dead. You shouldn't, like, expect one thing to happen or not because then that influences the outcome of the thing and so like you see that all throughout this with like when the eternally surprised and even like Lutze's garden of five surprises where the whole book lobsang is like well what's the fifth surprise and then at the end it's just a glasses and mustache and Lutze says well i never said it was a good surprise i want to talk about Lutze as well because i think that has a lot to say about Lutze as a character too but i did want to very touch briefly on this idea about when What did you think about his romance with Time, who is another anthropomorphic personification that we have never discussed or met before? I'm going to say that I liked it because it was interesting and because the focus wasn't really like romance. When has a romance with Time and and like you say, Time is actually an anthropomorphized being and that they can have children. I like how that relates to see Isabel being adopted by death and Susan being death's granddaughter. Like, I thought that was all really interesting because like, as you know, say it with me, I did not care for the romance. I thought it was interesting that Susan says, oh, it makes sense that she could have a child because death can't have a child. Yeah. He adopted Isabel and the genetics that make Susan were passed on either magically or mythologically, not biologically. I like how Susan says, but it makes sense that time could birth the child because the whole point of time is that she makes things happen in the future, right? That weren't in the past. Yeah, and that time going forward begets life anyway. So, like, that's basically childbirth. Exactly. What did you think about our Nanny Og cameo in this, where she is the midwife that Wen brings to help birth the child of time? I have so much to say about this. I think this is really fascinating because it kind of subverts everything that we've kind of assumed about Nanny Og from the witches books or like 
it subverts a large part of it. Because, like, a lot of what we talk about when we talk about the witches is that Granny Weatherwax is the one who, like, makes the important decisions and stuff. And, like, she's the leader of the group. And, you know, like, the scenes where where she has to choose between, like, the, the mother or the child dying or the scene, you know, with, like, the cow in the barn. Yeah. And her whole, like, damage reduction where she's trying to take on as much hurt as possible to stop everyone else from being hurt. In this, like, yeah, it's a bit silly with Nanny Og, and she's played with kind of, like, the, the comedy that you would expect. Yeah, so th- this is in the flashback. Like, when they're talking about how it's not twins, but the same person born twice, which is a really fascinating thing. I thought, how does this go in a mythic kind of way, Mrs. Og went on. I mean, technically, I could see we're in that area where the prince gets brought up as a swineherd until he manifests his destiny. But there's not that many swineherding jobs around these days, and poking hogs with a stick is not all it's cracked up to be, believes you me. So I said, well, I'd heard the guilds down in the big cities took in foundlings out of charity and looked after them well enough. And there's many well-set-up men and women who started life that way. There's no shame in it. Plus, if the destiny doesn't manifest as per schedule, he'd have set his hands to a good trade, which would be a consolation, whereas swineherding's just swineherding. You're giving me a stern look, miss. Well, yes, it was rather a chilly decision, Mossinus. Someone has to make them, said Mrs. Og. Besides, I've been around for some time, and I've noticed that them as has it in them to shine will shine through six layers of muck, whereas those who ain't shine won't shine, however much you buff them. This is the first time where, where we've seen that, like, Nanny Og performs a lot of really similar things to Granny Weatherwax. And the only difference is that, like, one is the mate, or one is the mother and one is the crone, or the other one. Granny Weatherwax in previous books has said, like, part of witching is making decisions, making those choices. And I mm. think we're finally getting to see the fact that Nanny Og can make those choices. That's part of being a witch. She knows how. She just doesn't a lot of times because Granny's there. And Granny is the one who sort of takes it upon herself to make those decisions. But I, it is part of this like edge witch. That's something that comes up in this book too. Like knowing where the edges are, knowing where the choices are uh, to be made and that you're the person that has to make them. And that's what makes Nanny go along with Wen in the first place, right? After seeing him three times in different parts of her life, and she's older and she's experienced more of this stuff and theoretically hung out with Granny more and watched how she does things. She's like she can feel that this is an edge. She can feels she can feel like this is that kind of moment. Yeah, and especially because like in the books when Granny isn't there or is indisposed or like in Carpe Jogulum has left they don't try and do things without her. Kind of the the imperative is to get Granny back because of like the role she form or the role she like fills in the in their coven. But it's it's very much like well we need Granny because Granny does specific things. But then this book is like well Nanny Og can also do those things. She just chooses not to. Although we do actually see on a very mythical like large world scale. Something that was observed, I think it was in Carpe Jogulum, where they say it was no surprise that Nanny was always called. I think Agnes says this. It was no surprise that Nanny was always called out for the births, but Granny was always called out for the deaths. Wen doesn't go for Granny, right? He goes to Nanny because Nanny is the one who is the best midwife, right? But it does also speak to that, those roles in the triple goddess, triple witch where Granny is not associated with childbirth, even though she can do that. 
same with Nanny, right? She can go to deathbed. She talks about how she's been to deathbeds before, but that's not her primary role. That's not what people ask her out for. Susan has this judgment on Nanny. She's kind of like, well, who are you to make that decision? And then Nanny is like, well, someone has to make it. It's interesting for Susan as like the granddaughter of death, who's very much all the time being like, there's no fairness, there's no justice, there's just me. And then Susan is like, well, who are you to decide how these lives turn out? Or life, comma, S, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess this goes back to our conversation earlier about the history monks. Like, they're basically doing what the witches do, right? Somebody has to make the decision, and it might as well be them, right? So yeah. it it kind of does fit all together here. But I do think Susan is relying once again, because we know Susan has this identity struggle between the death part of her and the human part of her, where she tries so desperately to cling to the stuff that she was taught in school by her parents, these belief systems, but then they're confronted by things that the death part of her already knows. But that doesn't mean she's not going to voice the human stuff. And she does to death and nanny several times in this book. I don't know when she says like, well, why did you didn't tell me things, and then Death is like, yes, but see here, like, you're human enough that I can't tell you how the future is going to turn out, because that never ends well for humans. I, I love this also just trope throughout the rest of the Death books, after Soul Music, when she was introduced, that, like, Death, whenever Death has a problem, he just calls on Susan, because, like, Susan yeah. understands enough of being Death to work with him, but also like has the added benefit of being partly human for like dealing with the real world. She's more flexible than he is. She's an ed edge witch, like in a sense too. And there, there's a good part of me that thinks that if Mort and Isabel had met like in a different timeline where they had met and had nothing to do with death, that Susan would have been a witch even without the death genetics. Mm, I like that. Yeah, that's just like even her personality, I think, would lend itself to that. I mean, she already wears black, which is like half of it. So <laughs> that's like one of the most important things, isn't that what they say in um, is it Lords and Ladies? Yeah, wearing black. Yeah, like that's, Looking, that's you like gotta 90... look like it. Yeah. yeah, I found it so sad the part where she goes to the club where death is a member. He's like a gentleman member of this club, which I think is hilarious. But then she like basically is like, what's going on? And he's like, would a little small talk hurt? And then there's this moment where she says she knew what was behind that. And it wasn't a happy thought. It was a small, sad and wobbly little thought. And it ran. Each of them had no one else but the other there. It was a thought that sobbed into its own handkerchief, but it was true. And then skipping down, it talks about her inability to have good relationships. And she says, it was hard to deal with people when a tiny part of you saw them as a temporary collection of atoms that would not be around in another few decades. And there she met the tiny part of death that found it hard to deal with people when it thought of them as real. They only have each other. And we've kind of touched on this in other books. I mean, yeah, he has Albert and the death of rats, but they don't understand him the way that Susan does. And nobody yeah. understands Susan the way that he does. But they have this difficult relationship because Susan has a lot of resentment for what she is. Death has definitely cursed Susan in some way. Yes. And so I'm curious to know what you think about 
the way this book develops and sort of resolves some of their relationship. I mean, it's building off of one of the most heartbreaking moments in all of the Discworld in soul music. Where, like, where Susan realizes that, like, death is this inhuman, anthropomorphized personification of, like, the end of all life on Earth. But he still built all these things in his house for her because she wasn't, you know, death. She was at least partly human. Like, she had a swing built by his own hands. And then death asking, you know, like, could your grandfather get a little kiss on the head? Oh, my God. That line. Yeah. Like, so yeah. It's, he loves her. He loves her so like, much. Like, insofar as he understands it and in his own way, like, he wants their relationship to be fine, but he doesn't know how to fix it. He doesn't know how to fix the thing that she's so angry about. As a neurodivergent person, I can really, really empathize with that. Yeah. So I only found this out recently. If you knew it already, like, you knew it already. But, like, also the way Susan talks about herself and her education, and this has come up before, but it comes up with Lobsang again, where she talks about how her parents were, like, very invested in training her like in math and logic and trying to like exclude her from that part of her heritage of the death part right they wanted her to grow up normal it reminded me a lot of the history of ada lovelace do you know who ada lovelace is yeah she was lord byron's daughter and she invented like the was i think is the correct term difference engine or something like when, like the early computer yeah so it's an early computer uh charles babbage made like he proposed this mechanical general purpose computer called the analytical engine and she was the first person to recognize that the machine had applications beyond just calculating things and she wrote and published the first algorithm so she was a mathematician i knew all of that but i didn't know she was byron's daughter and i also didn't know that she was the only legitimate child born to him and his wife um Mm -hmm. and his wife hated him as i'm sure you know well, I mean, that's deserved. It. Right, yeah. So she was so concerned that Ada would inherit his personality that she basically promoted her interest in mathematics and logic. Like, she was basically like, STEM, 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 don't write poetry, don't, you know, do art, like, do your math, do your logic, because she didn't want her mm. to end up like her father. And so... When I learned that, I thought that was fascinating, but also I immediately thought of Susan. I immediately thought of her education and the way that her parents were basically like, you should do logic, you should do education, you should become an educator, because they didn't want her to be sucked into death's world. They wanted her to be normal, and I think that that caused her to develop this resentment of knowing that she could never be that thing that her parents wanted her to be. Yeah, and neither can she be the thing that her grandfather wants to be because it was ingrained in her from birth that, like, this is something to be ashamed of and not recognize. Mort and Isabel have a lot to answer for. I am so fucking mad at them. And I liked them in that book. I liked them in that book, yeah. And then in the interim, they do a bunch of really shitty things, and then they die before we can ever, like, reckon with them again. Right, yeah, I just... I would also say my friend Finn was a large part of a campaign called uh, was uh, Justice for Ada Lovelace in college. There was like stickers and posters up all around and it was like to get recognition for Ada Lovelace in the college. 
because they were doing things like they were um, going to put two new busts in the Long Run Library at Trinity. And then they went, one of the ones they went with was Ada Lovelace. Uh, but it was a whole thing of like recognizing her for her, her achievements. It wasn't necessarily justice for her treatment at the hands of her parents because she happened to be related to Lord Byron. Yeah, I just didn't know she was related. Like I knew who she was and people who don't know who she was should look her up because it's fascinating. But I was just like, wait, she was Lord. Like you just never think of these people as being related. Like <laughs> Susan does seem to be very struck immediately by this idea that death tells her that there's another person like her out in the world. This son of time or sons of time, as we come to find out. Son, comma, S of time. How do you think her relationship with Lobsang, both romantic and just as somebody who is like her, helps her process these issues that we've been talking about? A lot of this book is like recontextualizing things that we thought were established, like that time is an anthropomorphized being and can have children. And that Susan isn't the only person in her predicament. And so, like, we have this contrast then with Susan, who was brought up to, like, hate the part of her that was not necessarily human. But whereas both Lobsang and Jeremy were kind of brought up, like, not knowing of that at all. And so they made their own way. And then they still ended up doing things which related to time by the end of the book. Well, they take over for time. Yeah, no, no, but as in, like... Uh, Lobsang ends up with the history monks and oh, Jeremy right. ends up making clocks. Um, and I also, m I must take issue with the name Jeremy Clarkson um, because of how yeah. similar it is to BBC presenter Jeremy Clarkson, who's a fucking arsehole. Was he a presenter at the time? Oh, probably. He's been around for a while. Like, this book came out in, what year did you say? 2001. Yeah, so this would have just been before Top Gear originally started and he was like, on the BBC beforehand. Oh, okay. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. I don't... No, but also, like, when you think about it, Clock Sun, like, really feels on the nose. But that's the point, right? Is that he was a foundling, which we find out the guild's taken foundlings, which we've never really established before. So he was a foundling mm. with the Clockmaker's Guild and Lopsang, who was called Nougat. Nougate? Nougate? He was called Newgate, was a foundling with the Thieves Guild before he was picked up by the History Monks. Yet another thing. Like, coming, like, at, at the end, like, the last line of the book, even with Nougat, you can have a good time. Yeah, little little pun there. No, I like that. And because then you also have, like, well, there's a fifth horseman, which I had an idea for a story as a child where it was like, well, what if there was a fifth horseman in, like, the biblical book of Revelations? But in my story, the fifth horseman was hope and not chaos. You want to know something really funny about this? Terry Pratchett in an interview actually said, because he was talking specifically about how books will some like characters in books will sometimes take over and you don't know mm. what they're going to be or what they're going to do. Like, you know, this idea that you plan things, but then things happen that you don't necessarily plan for. He said he did not know when he started writing Thief of Time, that that character was going to end up being Chaos the Fifth Horseman, that he just really liked the name Ronnie Soak. And so he was going yeah. to create this new character called Ronnie Soak, and it was only afterwards that he realized that Soak spelled backwards was Chaos, and like was like, oh, he should be the Fifth Horseman. <laughs> 
I like that. Because uh, I like that this is like, well, before everything, the chaos was there. From them, like, that death is just a long sleep and that war, like, like it kind of recontextualizes that, like, on the disc, like, the most powerful people are the horsemen and above them are only things like Azrael, Death of Universes, and mm-hmm. the Auditors. But now we're like, well, there was, you know, it's it's nearly um like a Greek mythological view of the universe that like from chaos order sprang ordo ab chaos, all of it is kind of turned on its head. Yeah, and then it has to like come to a resolution, and that's helped by the fact that all of these entities then are like, this isn't what things aren't what I thought they had been. I like that Susan has found someone who she can like actually share her struggle with because like. I don't know. I find it heartbreaking. The The scene just before Susan decides she's going to go off and help death, where she, like, convinces the headmistress in the school not fire her, essentially, and then also, like, grant her annual leave because of all the work she does to help the children. Everyone is kind of terrified of her on the administrative staff in the school. It's only the children, really, who like her. And she goes home and she, like, essentially lives alone. Yeah, she says that she she thinks sometimes that she should be worried that the people who she who know her the most are under three feet tall. Yeah. What did you think about her as a teacher? I like that. She's, it, she seems to be occupying very much a Miss Frizzle, uh, like, magic school bus thing, which is a show I didn't watch, but I understand she takes them to, l- like, weird and wacky places, and that's what... Susan is doing by like bringing them to she brings them to um, Lanker, she brings them to Death's house I love their little notes that they write about the stuff and then he told us about his horse like <laughs> yeah like yeah he was a nice horse I love all the education scenes with Susan because I I agree with you about the Miss Frizzle thing I read the Miss Frizzle books when I was a kid and I think I watched a few Other episodes books. of the show yeah they were books originally Oh. And that is definitely what's happening with Susan. It also feels like a really natural progression from governess, where she was a governess in The Hogfather, and now she's a, a school teacher. I love that she uses her powers so flagrantly to educate. Like, she's not trying to hide them at all, which I think is really funny. It's just that people have convinced themselves that that couldn't possibly happen, and so they ignore them. Yeah, she takes them on trips. She uses the look, right, to keep the children in line. She, like, tells the children, you know, kind of echoing the thing with Twyla in Hogfather, the whole thing about, like, you don't need to be scared with monsters. Get angry, right? And so you get the child, like, Mm. wandering around her parents' house with, like, a a sword trying to find the monsters. Like, all of that stuff, I thought, was really great and really funny. Yeah. Have you seen the new Paddington films? Yeah. I have. Susan giving people the look reminds me of when Paddington gives people the look when they're like not being mannerly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I I also think it's interesting the parallels between Lopsang Jeremy, although he goes by Lopsang after after they merge because he yeah. likes that name better. I like how they have these parallels with each other and it seems like they are the only two people who can understand what it's like to grow up mostly human with the this, you know, bit of not human in them. Their, you know, parentage or ancestry being anthropomorphic personifications. 
I also think it's interesting that Susan has spent so long, like ever since Soul Music, trying very hard not to become death because whenever death like takes time off, Susan gets dragged into being death. And like theoretically, eventually she could become death, you know, if if death decided to like not do that anymore, which is very it's a very Sandman type of situation there. But we see that Lop saying takes over for time. Like she time and when retire together and Lopsang becomes time. And so it's interesting that he embraces that, embraces becoming the anthropomorphic personification of time, whereas Susan resists it. Yeah. Have you been reading any of the like new Salmon Universe comics? Just when I'm thinking about this. A few. Yeah, no, no, I because I have only started reading them for the first time recently, and like there is a lot of that. Like in the main series, obviously we have when Dream is captured, and then like Wesley Dodds becomes the Sandman while he's imprisoned, uh, and then you know, like we have the fact that there was a despair before this despair, and delight became delirium. But now we have like, have you read the the Dreaming series? Yeah. Of the Sandman universe, yeah, like where they go to Destruction's realm, and it's very much like if you take up this sword, then you can become Destruction, even though he's gone on his way. Right. Well, that's why Destruction refuses to die, because he says, like, if I die, someone else will just have to do it, and I wouldn't want anyone else to do it. Yeah, I like that, because there's a lot in that and in the Dreaming series about, like, how there's different versions of myths and they're all kind of the same thing. You know, like the different versions of fratricidal brothers and how that relates to Cain and Abel. And I think that, like, that's relevant to this as well. You know, where it's talking about the Hogfather and the Tooth Fairy and Old Man Trouble and how they're kind of like faces we've shaped. And this is something we've talked about before, especially in the death books, a lot. Let's talk a little bit about Lobsang and Jeremy. What did you think about both these characters individually and then the realization that they're actually the same person? I didn't catch that up until just before it was revealed. It did not occur to me that they could be the same person. Because I was like, oh yeah, obviously the person whose, na- whose name is Clock's son is the son of time. But then the scene where like Death is talking to one of the monks and then they're talking about like what Lobsang is doing and Death can't see them, can't see Lobsang, I was like, huh, so maybe Lobsang is and Jeremy Clock's son is just a red herring. And I was like unsure about it up until the e- up until just before it was revealed that it's they're both the same person. I think a paragraph and a half before I was like, oh, wait, they're the same person. And then the narrative revealed it. I will say I felt very smart about it. But no, I like that. And I like that it's it deals with the fact that they're two separate personalities in a way that isn't like weirdly antagonistic. It's interesting to me that Lob saying as a character is the gifted child, right? Like he is the one who like... He has all this power. They don't really know where it comes from. He's way ahead of the other novices in the in the history monks. You know, he they can't figure out how he's doing what he's doing. He's answering problems that he shouldn't be able to answer, all of these things. And that causes him to act out because he's bored, which is why they give him to, to Lutzi. And that is a really interesting narrative about, like, often p- children who are considered gifted 
they can't learn conventionally. You have to challenge them or else they become very bored and very destructive often. Whereas Jeremy is like the opposite. I mean, he's not the opposite because he's also gifted. He's very good at making clocks, but he represents his neuroatypicality in a very different way where he mm. he has problems with social cues. He uh, has had apparently violent incidents in the past or meltdowns in the past um, when it comes to people not respecting his work or respecting time, right, or not trying to make clocks accurate. And so you get a lot of different variations on the same theme with these two halves of a personality. It also reminded me a lot of Neil Gaiman's Anansi Boys. Have you read that book? No, although I will say the just no, I will say that the volume of the Sandman universe I'm reading is called Anansi. So like, I, I wonder, will it be the same? What What's Anansi Boys about? So Anansi Boys happens, it takes place in the same universe as American Gods. Anansi actually shows up in American Gods. Oh, yeah. But this takes place afterwards. And basically, it is these two brothers who realize that their father was Anansi. And so they're very like Susan and uh, Lapsang in this is that they realize that they're demigods in certain ways, but they're two very different people. It's Spider and Charlie. That's their names. But Spider mm. inherits more of a Nazi's power and is more comfortable with it. Whereas Charlie, um, he still has that power, but he's not as comfortable. He wants to live more like a human. And so... There's a lot in that book about these two brothers and the parallel lives that they lead. And there's a lot of indication that they might be the same person, but it's it's hard to know. And also that they might be trying to rebirth Anansi, like Anansi has died and that they're trying to like rebirth him. And so it's it's a very interesting book, but it has a lot of parallels between the two, um, between them and Lopsang Jeremy, I think. One of the lines that really struck me was... Um... When when they're asked what name do they want to go by, do they want to go by Lobsang or Jeremy? It's I don't think I ever really liked the name Jeremy, even when I was Jeremy. I mean, obviously you can read that from a, a trans uh, narrative perspective, but just like I like that they're so similar and they're kind of like yearning towards some some form of unity, even though they're um even though they're like separated. And I love that it's because of a stutter in time. Basically, she gave birth to the same person twice, which feels like something that might happen. <laughs> so, uh, you know, with somebody like time. So both of them are paired with people in order to flesh out their characters and to advance the story along. So Jeremy is paired with Igor. Another Igor shows up in this book. And Lopsang is paired with Lutza. Yay. Which one do you want? Which pair do you want to talk about first? Lopsang and Lutza or Igor and Jeremy? I feel like there's more to Lopsang Lutza. Jeremy Igor stuff gets into a lot of like the mechanics of how Igors work, which I think is really like interesting. We have you know like the rules that Igors have to live by. But mm -hmm. I feel like there's more meat to the actual relationship between Lobsang and Lutze? I, I will say, just to quickly cover it, and then we can move on to, to Lobsang and Lutze, I think it's funny that that this Igor has, one, worked for a lot of insane scientists and all of the references to Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein and like all of that stuff in here is great. 
But I also hmm. think it's funny that he sees Jeremy as like the opposite of insane. Like this is he's a very sane person and that worries him more than the insanity of previous masters. I just was very tickled by all of the mad scientist references in this particular storyline. That's something that has come up in the Discworld before, even like in the Watchbooks where it's talking about like how a, uh, a good person will just kill you, but uh, like a bad person will will monologue and take their time. This is something, can I just like talk about it briefly? Like, yeah, just like insanity when it's written into like a character that like they're insane, certain iterations of the Joker or BBC's Moriarty, it very like very quickly becomes a get out of jail free card for like not having to actually come up with character motivations. Right. But then you can also like make the defense that it's like, well, a person isn't in their right mind, but like what's scarier than the Joker committing heinous acts because he's quote unquote insane is like someone who's fully aware of what they're doing and still chooses to do it anyway. Like that's kind of way more terrifying. And Jeremy, what he is doing with the glass clock is it is a science experiment. It is a a something that will irrevocably change the nature of the universe, but he's doing it for reasons of sanity and order, which is something the auditors very much value, instead of the usual, mm. you know, they said I was mad, mad, you know, type of Frankenstein, yeah. you know, type of type of attitude. You know, and so it it is very interesting to see the comparison between the two. I also like that Igor ship themselves now, like they have a service and that they have a Sephimore address. Yeah. <laughs> They're getting organized. Can we have a an Igor union? Can they unionize? Can that be the next step? I think they have, actually, right? They have an Igor Igor his aunt Igorina runs the whole thing. Oh yes, you're I right. Think that's great. I had forgotten about that. The one instance where the like the name is not just Igor, and you're supposed to implicitly know which Igor they're talking about. They're, like this one is Igorina. I mean, apparently she's on top of her shit. Like she's got this yeah. all worked out. She's a girl boss. Yeah, she's a girl boss. All right, let's talk about Lutza and Lobsang. So we've already talked kind of about these characters a little bit. Lutza, like I said, we've seen him before in Small Gods. But this is a book that really wants to delve into this character and tell us who he is and why he does what he does. Same thing with Lopsang. I think most of the book is actually spent on their relationship. Although I think it's funny that this book, I really like this book, but nothing really happens for the first 150 pages besides people talking. But it's so good. Like, I love these characters so much. It doesn't matter. Anyway, what did you think about Lutza in this book and his relationship with Lopsang? I really enjoyed the character of Lutza, like the fact that he's kind of like the most looked down upon person in the monastery. You know, like he's just called the Sweeper. At first, I thought when they're talking about our old friend the Sweeper, I thought that they meant death, and I liked that as like a like a way of referring to death that he he sweeps people away. Oh, I didn't think about that. I like no, no, but I I like the like that he's so looked down upon and he's kind of abused, but like. The whole thing is like that if people actually knew who he was, they treat him so differently and he doesn't want that. But like if someone does do that, then they're they're quite clear uh, uh, quickly and swiftly taught, you know, like the error of their ways. 
it kind of reminds me a little bit of Granny Weatherwax and Headology. Yeah. Where he is willing to trade on people underestimating him, but also he's willing to trade on the reputation of rule number one, beware of a, a small, wrinkly, smiling man with a broom. He's willing to trade mm. on that reputation when he needs to, to avoid fighting. But at the same time, he can back all that up. Like, it does seem like he's a bit of a fraud at first to Lopsang, just like Granny Weatherwax seemed like she was a bit of a fraud to Agnes. Then you realize that they use headology so that way they don't have to get into situations where they need to use their real power. But if they do get into those situations, they absolutely will use their real power. Yeah, anytime that, like, Lutze brings Lobsang to a dojo, everyone all of a sudden <laughs> is like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and once Lobsang learns about rule one, when, it, like, like near the end, when he's like, come with me to the Iron Dojo, Lobsang returns to ask what the fifth surprise is, where he's like, oh, fuck, no. Like, I know what rule one is. I'm not, no, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> rule one, it, it's, like, such a Discworld thing. It's not... It's not anything, like, big or philosophical. Like, it's not, you know, it's not something that you would read in, like, The Art of War or Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Like, this is just something, like, it feels very when. It's funny that this is an entire philosophy system based on the writings of when the Eternally Surprised, and yet Rule 1 was clearly written about Lutze. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't underestimate him, because then you will be surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they start off on their journey, and Lopsang is like, how are you warming yourself? And Lutza is like, oh, I'm wearing these like specially knitted long johns. And Lutza's like, oh, or Lopsang is like, oh, so it's a trick. But then he realizes that he's like, the snow is, is melting around Lutza's feet. And so he yeah. is like somehow using time to warm himself, like... It's a very fun, like, mix of humility and yet giftedness, right? Because yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure until Lopsang came along, Lutza was the gifted child, right? Like, he was the one who was doing all the cool stuff that nobody else could do. Like, that moment where all the, the spinners uh, really put into yeah. perspective for Lutza that, like, oh, no, Lopsang is much better than I am. Did you think it was cool how Death couldn't see Lopsang? In that yeah. moment? Yeah. But it was also, like, very confusing for me. I was like, whoa, what the fuck is going on? And I was like, God, yeah. I really hope this is addressed by the end of the <laughs> the book. And it was. The spinners are so cool. Uh, like, everything about the everything about the monastery, like I said, is really cool. But especially the spinners. And, like, you know those scenes where they're like, oh, you can take a bit of time from here when they're essentially bringing it down, they're breaking it down, I feel like, in a way that's like trying to stop a nuclear core from exploding, which is very on brand for Terry Pratchett because he worked in a nuclear power plant, right? Yeah. And so they're like, you know, when they're like, you've got like, oh, 14 years left and I don't know whether you're going to be able to like vent that out somewhere. Like those scenes were so fascinating because I was like, I want, I want like a, a, a I don't know, like, if this were a show or uh, a film, I'd be like, I want a spin-off thing about that's entirely set in here just because I want more of this. The the lives of the of the monks who keep the 
the spinners going. Who yeah. that's their job. I'd watch it. Like an office place comedy. <laughs> oh my god, that's that would work, I think. I think so it, too. Because like the problem with the watch show was that like it adapted badly a beloved series of books and it had adapted the main characters in them. Whereas like we know next to nothing about these history monks. So like if you go and you do something which is different to what we saw in Thief of Time, then it's kind of like its own little thing. And like it's not the main focus of the book. BBC, call us. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like there's there's probably some way we can attract the attention of someone who could make this happen. I don't know how, but I feel like there is legitimately a way. We have ideas and we have good ideas. We have good ideas. We do. Absolutely. I just think that's fascinating the way that they use things that we would normally associate with like Buddhism or like the that spirituality as a way of interacting with time in a way that seems both spiritual and practical. So like, like you have the fu. spinners, like deja vu or the spinners or uh, the mandala, right? Where they and they can replay mm. it almost like a like a computer. I yeah. think that that's all very interesting. And the procrastinators, it's almost like steampunk spirituality, right? Where you can like wind them back up. This feels very much like in the mold of H.G. Wells's Time Machine, like the way that the procrastinators are talked about. I love also that moment where Susan's like, so what's supposed to happen when that thing stops turning? And Lopsang says, I'll be frozen. And she's like, so the fact that it stopped turning five minutes ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. That was a great moment. I loved that. You know, like where, where he's like, well, I can't touch people. I can't touch this. I can't touch that. And he's like, well, I can touch the bottle because like the bottle is in the air and it should still have momentum. I don't know. There's so much there's so much to like explore. And like the faster you go, the more dangerous it is because it's like a diver. Right. Yes. Uh, like so it was like blue and then violet, then black. But then there's that like little plateau that you reach where it becomes like easier. Like I'll, that's all great stuff. And the imagery too, like. Like just watching people be frozen or like when he's looking at that deer and he's moving faster than it, but he can see its muscles like slowly starting to bunch up to run. Like all of that yeah. stuff was so cool. Ah, time slicing. And like how that relates to like the fighting as well. No, no, just like when they're fighting and they're like using time slicing. Mm. Yeah. Chef's kiss. So good. I would watch this. Like, this seems like a really cool action movie idea, too. Like, using time to fight. So, when they realize that another glass clock is being made, when they have all the issues with the spinners and the mandala, and they see, and they compare it to the mandala when the glass clock originally was made in Uberwald, Lutza blames himself for the first glass clock because he knew something bad was happening and he was like very close to stopping it. Like he was in the doorway, like trying to slice time so he could stop it from happening, but he didn't do it. And so he tells Lop saying that he blames himself. Like if he had only gone to the right castle, he's like, there was too many damn castles in Uberwald. Like if he'd only gone to the right castle or if he'd only been faster, then none of this would have happened. And so he, it oh, yeah. seems like he sees this glass clock as a way of making up for that and he's worried that if it happens again there won't be enough to fix it there's something really powerful about character motivations coming from like the same thing happening again having to do with the fact that you failed to stop it the last time 
you know, like the overall world dealing with the fact that Sauron comes back and that having right. to like all of society being like to Frodo, you can't fuck this up, Frodo, because like Isildur didn't throw it into the, the fire a thousand years ago or whatever. You now have to like save the entirety of Middle Earth or like any other non fantasy example that hasn't come to my head. I, my, I'm blanking on the Lord of the Rings. No, I think that's a really powerful thing. And the fact that like he blames himself instead of just being like, I didn't get there in time because he's he's so chill about everything else. But on this, he's like, no, it was my fault. And like, because of my failure to stop it, history was shattered. I find that very powerful in the way he's willing to tell that to Lopsang, because I think Lutza as a character could be pretty simplistic in terms of like, oh, he's like the old man who doesn't is not what he appears but he's actually super powerful and he's a mentor to Lopsang and all that's good stuff, but it, it kind of fits within some pretty established tropes of fantasy. But having that added complicated layer of failure, right? Like he was so good at everything and yet he still failed and time was so broken because of it. And it wasn't broken before, right? He says history had hardly done anything before this happened. And I find that just, it gives him that extra layer, that extra, like, humility, I think. And I think that's why he's a sweeper, to be honest with you. I mean, I think that Mm. it is partially the way he deals with the world, but I think it also gives him that clarity of who he is in relation to what has happened. What did you think about the philosophy, uh, his way, the philosophy of Mrs. Cosmopilite, who is a character that we met in moving pictures? She's the one who makes all the costumes for the actors. Yeah, no, I like that because that kind of continues the like, the like common sense, or it feels very much like 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 the way old people talk in Britain and Ireland, where it's like, well, is it not written that you should be surprised? And like this, this very like aphorism-based common sense philosophy. You know, it's not like the the koans that they talk about later on, which I believe are actually a real thing in, like, Japanese Buddhist philosophy. They're meant to be some kind of, like, riddle that you're meant to figure out, if I remember correctly. They're kind of like paradoxes on their own. What I get from this book is there's a lot of connections between scientific paradoxes, spiritual paradoxes and then those common sense philosophies that you're talking about like all of those things are connected in the character of Lutza he sees all of these things as existing together this is what reminded me of the moment weirdly it's this song called golden boy where John Darnielle is singing about a a now discontinued line of peanuts (laughs) golden boy peanuts and so he's just talking about like like the idea of heaven this idealized perfect place is a place where like there are no pan-asian supermarkets down in hell so you can't find golden boy peanuts there but the streets of heaven are lined with shelves and there's posters of the bill of the golden boy everywhere and so like to get to this place you know like you must give to the march of dives dimes you must be on guard against wickedness at all times and you will find that your efforts have brought you great joy when your spirit is munching on the golden boy but, like, what reminded me of it was, like, you must do unto otters as you would have them do. Uh, and, in this, <laughs> and in the song, it's like, you must do unto others. Like, that's the one where they're like, this makes no sense. This one actually just doesn't make sense. He's like, I might have written that one down wrong. But I loved it. I loved how he was, like, he was trying to find a place to stay. And she says, I wasn't born yesterday. And he's like, that's what Wen said. 
you know, in his in his holy teachings. So I just the interconnectedness of everything for Lutza, the idea that everything that these are ideas that are expressed in different ways, in different places. um, And it doesn't matter if it's spiritual or scientific or folk knowledge. It's all the same thing. Yeah, because especially like that phrase, like I wasn't born yesterday is meant to like is meant to be some sort of like like repudiation against gullibility right it, it's supposed to imply that yes you're n- you weren't born yesterday because you have so much experience but like just on a common basic level like when you take the phrase exactly as it stands it, it's like well yeah obviously on a most right. basic level like i know you're not a baby then yes right but it also fits into that destruction and recreation of the universe every second right yeah and like it goes back to what you were on about with derrida earlier on where it's like the like the limits of language and what we mean like like what's implied by what we mean right not to get into signifier and signifieds but like that also yeah i i definitely think about that when i did my master's thesis on alice in wonderland and delirium i talked a lot about language and the sort of flexibility of different things that can mean multiple meanings and how that indicates like a flexibility in when we talk about ways of understanding things, when we talk about ways of knowledge, like having that flexibility is often associated with people who are not the ones writing the history books, who are not the ones um, who are creating philosophy. It's associated with people like women, minority groups, uh, people of color, right? Um, there's a reason why mm. puns are called low humor, and it's because a lot, a lot of white men during the Enlightenment decided that they didn't want language to mean a lot of stuff. They wanted words to mean what they meant. And so it's fascinating to me. Anytime I come across this in literature, when it's just like, oh, here's something, but it can mean multiple things, and all of it's true. It's ways of knowing. Uh, that's uh, Donna Haraway. It's it's a it's a repudiation of objective knowledge, which is often used to bully minorities and people of color into um, not acting in ways that they should act. Yeah. No. Honestly, I find I find objectivism so boring. Like, if you have just a purely objectivist view of the world, it's like. Do you have anything else to say? Oh, things are what they are. Oh, okay, cool. So nothing can surprise you. Nothing can be new. Nothing can have an extra meaning or depth. Okay, cool. Like, I I kind of don't want to talk to people who are like that, if I'm being honest. Have you read Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto? I have not. Okay, I recommend it. She's not perfect. I mean, she wrote this back in the uh, 80s. So, like, you know, there's been a lot of feminism since then. Everyone knows feminism only only happened in the 90s, so like we shouldn't criticize this this book or this <laughs> author, obviously. She did give us some really good vocabulary for talking about how the idea of objectivity has been used primarily by men to suppress other ways of knowing. Yeah, so what Donna Haraway basically says, she gave she coined the term situated knowledges, which is what she says. It's basically a more feminist way of looking at objectivity because objectivity is very male-dominated, very racist, very militarized in a lot of ways. And she says that, uh, let me find it, it's a great, great quote where she, she, she 
compares objectivity to the eye, the idea of being able to see everything. So the eyes have been used to signify a perverse capacity honed to perfection in the history of science tied to militarism, capitalism, colonialism, and male supremacy to distance the knowing subject from everybody and everything in the interests of unfettered power. And then she skips down and says, vision in this technological feast becomes unregulated gluttony. All seems not just mythically about the God trick of seeing everything from nowhere, which is like the best way of describing objectivity I've ever heard. The God trick of seeing everything from nowhere, but to have put the myth into ordinary practice. And like the God trick, this eye fucks the world to make techno monsters. It is like one of my favorite things that she has ever written. That particular line, the eye fucks the world to make techno monsters. But the idea is, is that the opposite of that kind of objectivity that sees everything from nowhere is situated knowledge, which is knowledges that are come up by different people and they can all be true at the same time. So language Mm. is one way that we see this when you see things that can mean different things to different people. Just like Mrs. Cosmopilite's way is basically a different perspective, a different meaning, but it lies alongside when the eternally surprised. That's an example of situated knowledge. Yeah. Or in the same way that, like, we're kind of led to believe that after the events of World War II, there was a push towards, like, big global capitalism, but, like, a lot of countries in Europe had, you know, had elections and they actually elected like socialist or communist leaders and not just like in the like, oh, China, Russia, Eastern Bloc bad, you know, in places like Italy and Greece, they had socialist leaders. And like, this is also true. This is also true is probably a good definition of situated knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. But like the male driven objectivity would be like, well, the war ended and then America became a global superpower and we created capitalism on a global scale um and it was all good yeah that's basically it yeah this idea and that's where things like mental illnesses are illnesses they're not uh neuroatypicality right those are things that you can see the difference between that objective way of thinking of saying like for an example that someone who has autism like that's a disorder we need to fix that That's an example of like male dominated, male and ableist dominated objectivity, whereas a situated knowledge would say this is just another way of being human, that not all humans are exactly alike. And so that's the example there. Yeah, especially because like, and I think this is this is becoming like a big part of um, like the trans debate. I'm putting that in massive absolutely. And, like, the fact that people are saying, oh, it it only happened, like, oh, trans people only happen from, like, X point. But it's the same kind of discussion we've been, like, we've been starting to have where it's like, well, what about people with autism or, you know, like, uh, any other kind of neuroatypicality where it's like, well, we don't see that in history. But no, just the way they were spoken about was completely different. Like, the language and the stigmatization was different. So, like we don't really know we can make guesses based off of like how certain people were described but like it's not a new thing like objectivism and male-led ableism would have us believe 
And this is actually perfect, this conversation, because it leads us right into talking about the auditors, who are probably the most objective (laughs) Mm. source of creature, I guess, in the disc world, right? Because the whole point is that the auditors who have been trying to do this for several books now, right? They're they're death's most often enemy. They're they're the mm. worst antagonist that death can have. Their whole point is that they want to impose order, but it's their order, right? They don't want anybody but them to have a perspective because if that happens, then how can they tell what's real? My main thought, like as we got towards the end of the book, was that I would love to see this adapted because I feel like the scenes of the auditor squabbling would be fucking hilarious to watch. It feels like a horror movie at times. Like, it's very funny until someone cuts someone else's head off. <laughs> no, I'm Mr. Or it's like, I'm Mr. Black. Black is a higher color. And, you know, like, oh, but white. No, white is above that because black is the absence of color. Mm, all right, then I'm Mr. White. You can be Mr. Black. What's funny about that is that that's a direct reference to Quentin Tarantino's 1992 film Reservoir Dogs. Because in that movie, they're doing a heist and they don't want to use their real names because they don't want anyone to know who the other people are. So they use Mr. White, Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink, Mr. Mm. Brown. And so I I get that now. I've seen that movie now. <laughs> and so now I understand like what this reference is. Why that he chose colors. Did you? Nope. You haven't seen anything. No. I've seen... Reservoir, or I've seen Pulp Fiction, and I didn't like it, and kind of wish, uh, kind of wish I hadn't really. I mean, that's, that's fair. The, that's the only Tarantino film I've seen, though. I would recommend Inglorious Bastards. I feel like you would like that film, but that's getting sidetracked here. This idea of bending the rules, right? Because they're always trying to find loopholes in the rules. So the first loophole they tried was to get Death fired. The second loophole that they tried was to uh, kill the... Remove the, the Hogfather. Move, remove the Hogfather. And now they have decided that they can't kill everybody, but they can stop time, and that's basically the same thing. I like that in the sense that, like, Death's ultimate victory over the Auditors, like, he kind of doesn't have any part in. Yeah. Well, he set uh, Susan uh, on it. He set Susan on it, yeah, but I think it would have largely happened without the interference of it. Because it it starts once uh, the auditors give uh, Miss Valjean... Wait, is that her name? Valjean? Miss Jean? Lejean. Miriam Lejean. And then she goes by Unity later. Yeah, uh, when they give her assistance, which feels like, I don't know, like... I don't know how based on actual Appalachian folklore there is, but like the podcast Old Gods of Appalachia talks about like these things called like the Six Men, who are just like a random eldritch kind of like group of six creatures that look like men who are meant to help. Uh, and that's the original thing. But like the fact that so many more of them come and then they're forced to like understand humanity, that like as Death says, it's starting to like get to the, the ones who aren't on Earth because of like how they're connected. Miria Lejean and then Unity is a very interesting character because she, I mean, she's the first auditor we've met that becomes good. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's because she becomes human, right? She takes on the form of this human body and it 
irrevocably changes her in ways that she recognizes to be good. Unlike the others, when they take on human bodies, they almost become insane and violent. But she sees the insanity as fascinating, as something to explore, something she doesn't want to stop. That's what she says. She says humans are insane. By their nature, they are insane because they are dealing with all of these senses and their body has a mind of its own and there's so many voices in their heads that are vying for attention. Like, I, it's so interesting, this discussion that the auditors and her want to have about does form define being? Yeah, uh, and I think that's a much more important question to have in fiction in general, but also like as opposed to just being, oh, nature versus nurture. I mean, for one, it's tired, but also like no matter what you are, like what you are ends up forming like how you act. So like form being defined by being and vice versa, I think is a much more important thing to ha- uh, like have a discussion about. And then like just introducing that to the auditors without any like years of like living with it and getting used to it. It's <laughs> just being like, have you read the Artemis Fowl book series? Yes, I have. Yeah, oh, is it? It's been um, so long. Oh, what's the fifth one? The one actually where they traveled in time. The Opal no, not the Opal Deception. I don't remember. But like like the way they beat the villain is to like restore his sense of smell and he just can't cope with the fact that he can smell. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I've forgotten about that, but that yeah. I think it's called the Time Paradox or something, maybe. Quite possibly. I can't it's been so long since I've read those books that Yeah, they're by an Irish author. Yeah, I mean, I loved them when I was a teenager. I should reread those. Yeah, I, I, so I'm going to put on my scholarship hat again. I promise that after this, I won't do this anymore. But, like, I write a lot about the connection between, like, body and mind and the ways in which that's been theorized um, throughout history. And when we think about the body-mind connection now, um, us here in, you know, Europe and America... I hate using the term the West, so I'm not going to use it. But when we think about the body and the mind, we are generally relying on a framework that was set up by Descartes, right? I think, therefore, I am. Um, Mm. And Descartes, if you look more into his philosophy, he did not believe that the body was important, that it was really the mind that was important, and that the mind was something you could disconnect from the body. The body was at most like an annoyance, right? It's just a machine. He actually calls bodies machines. And that has shaped so much of the way that we treat people over the last couple of centuries. Because if you think about it, only certain people can ignore their bodies. Other people, they're defined by their bodies. So white, like male... Who live chronic pain. Right. But white, male, cis... Mm. Rich people, rich men, I should say, they're not defined by anything. They're just people, right? It's their mind and their reason that they're defined by. But women, people of color, people who are disabled, poor people, they are almost always defined in society by their bodies. And so there is this like tension in, it goes back to that objectivity towards situated knowledge situation. I personally am more with the post-human theorists that say that you can't separate the mind from the body, that in order to have a human, you have to have a body. 
And if you were to do what a lot of post-human theorists think, which is to take your mind and download it into like a computer, right, to, to separate your mind from your body, that you would no longer be the same person. And so mm. this comes up in, I love this because it comes up in Thief of Time in a way that explains it perfectly well, I think. And it's uh, where she's talking about how the body changes the auditors. It's happening already, thought Lady Lejeune. It's in the darkness where your eyes can't see. The universe becomes two halves, and you live in the haft behind the eyes. Once you have a body, you have a me. I have seen galaxies die. I have watched atoms dance. But until I had the dark behind the eyes, I didn't know the death from the dance. And we were wrong. When you pour water into a jug, it becomes jug-shaped, and it is not the same water anymore. An hour ago, they dreamed of having names, and now they are arguing about them. The idea is, is that our bodies define us just as much as our minds do. Our mind is not something that you can untether from the body and be the same person. Bodies actually do define how we act and how we think. And so I think that's it's beautifully expressed in this, the way that she talks about her body and how that has formed her into an individual person who is distinctly different from the collective that she left yeah and it's something i think as well just like in hearing what you were saying about how like certain people can't not think about their bodies and can't not be defined by them like it came up in the fifth elephant you know where it's like certain species of animal can't really conceive of morality and what's right or wrong because they're constantly living like looking for the next meal so that they survive Right. Then also just the fact like like werewolves I think are an inter so much of the so much of Discworld is like how sci-fi and fantasy create really like interesting explorations of philosophy cuz like you have the mind body split but like then when you apply a werewolf like a person who is like a creature that's a person and then becomes defined by the fact that its body is now a wolf and an animal like is really right. interesting like it's both Right. And Susan brings up borrowing and werewolves to explain this to Lopsang, right? Because she says, like, if a werewolf stays a wolf too long, it's going to start being more like a wolf than a per than a human. And if a witch stays borrowing too long, which we've had this conversation before, they will end up being becoming part of that animal instead of coming back to their body. Yeah. But she says it's not the witch in a animal's body. It's that the body affects the consciousness. It absorbs it into the body. And so it becomes a new being. Because they bring that up then when Susan is talking to Lobsang about... And this is based off of a real Chinese philosopher, the one who had the dream of the butterfly. Yeah. Uh, and then woke up and like talked about, well, was I a man dreaming of being a butterfly or am I now a man? Or am I now a butterfly dreaming of being a man? What did you think about what I think is the funniest scene in this book, which is the auditor trap scene where they have the different signs like don't oh, no admittance, so don't funny. go past this, uh, stay left, but the arrow's pointing right. Ignore this sign. The one sign. that just says duck. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, why duck? And then Susan's like, why duck indeed? <laughs> why duck indeed? The auditors cannot handle this kind of flexible thinking. This kind of puts the... Or like like shows the lie to purely objective and rational thinking is because it doesn't beget any kind of like interpretation outside of like 
signs and what they what they like like mean on a one to one translation. You know, like in the right. same way that like I wasn't born yesterday is just a statement that you are not a one day year old person instead of I'm not gullible. Like the the, the auditors couldn't understand that because they would just say, Well, yeah, obviously. Right, exactly. What did you think about Lady Muriel Lejean slash Unity and her arc in this book? It was really satisfying to see. With the rest of the auditors starting to become human and like teaching them that this is like what Death was talking about, like that this is the people you need to like understand. Which seems to be why Death is constantly taking up jobs. Yeah. To understand the people. <laughs> or like how Death in the Sandman series works where uh, once every hundred years she becomes she has a mortal form so she can understand the people whose lives she takes like to have that be a source of distress for them but then to have unity be like well no i actually like this and i understand that what i was doing was wrong and that being human is fine i especially from like someone who's like the divine arbiter of the universe or one of them or i suppose they're all one because they all think as one like that's what they say like we don't we don't need an I, we just have a, a we and one speaks for us. She's made as human by like interacting with Jeremy as like just being in the world. And art, right? Art is a yeah. big part of it too, because she sees the art in the museum. She tries to paint herself because she understands that it's not just breaking it down into its molecules, which we see other auditors doing, right? Where they're trying to understand the art by like taking the paint and breaking it down and trying to understand like what exactly the order of the atoms means. But she understands that it's more than that. Like it's more than the sum of its parts. And that somehow helps her to understand who she is. That's the thing that like made me laugh the most is that the, like the other auditors trying to understand art because they're like, Oh God, what's happening. And then they're like, I think they're trying to appreciate art. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Death and the Five Horsemen. Yeah, Death doesn't have as much to do in this book, even though it's theoretically his book. He kind of hands the task off to Susan because he says, like, you you can handle this. And then he goes off to find the other four, the other three horsemen, really. And then they get joined by Chaos later. I thought it was I thought it was really funny that we have a getting the band back together storyline that doesn't work. None of the people who are in the band want to be. <laughs> and obviously they have to show up. But I also like the angel clothed it all in white of the Iron Book. Is like, well, they have to show up. And Death is like, they're not showing up. And then they do show up just because like the universe demands that they have to, whether they want to or not. Yeah. <laughs> I'd also watch a buddy cop comedy about the four horsemen. Oh, 100%. I want to know what broke up the band originally. Every time somebody asks them about it, they're always like, creative differences. It was fine. Yeah. I really hope it's not like a Fleetwood Mac situation. Oh, God. No. So, yeah, you've already talked a little bit about the chaos thing, but I just, I don't know. I thought the chaos thing was so interesting, and I love that he rescues Lutza because he says, uh, I always look after one of my own. And so the idea that, like, Lutza is, like, an agent of chaos and that, like, he recognizes that in him, I just, hmm. that was, that was great. Ronnie would also rescue Dibbler if Dibbler were in danger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Going back to our Sandman discussion, the whole Ronnie Soak thing, chaos becoming a dairy, a dairyman, uh, that really reminded me of destruction, trying to 
retire and become an artist or become baker or whatever. This idea of mm. like he's got to find a job now that he's not doing his anthropomorphic thing. Like all that talk about the uh like like that chaos with a c h a o s is chaos k a o s with like you know his hair combed and how like it's an interesting discussion to have because we don't really think about like like we think like yeah if we assume that the big bang is the model that the universe like was created from and we were like yeah what was before that and we kind of like well we don't know but like it was kind of just a big jumbled mess um and even in the early days of the universe too it was all just chaos so like chaos is is fundamentally like a big like also like the law of entropy in physics yeah and i love that he specifically takes issue with the auditors because the auditors are sort of the anti-chaos they're, they're like there's a difference between ordo order even um and like the auditors because like you can have order and have chaos but they want just pure order which is like i think whenever you have a state which is purely something it's kind of like terrifying or bad so like yeah the, the concept of a utopia is just as terrifying as the concept of a dystopia like when you actually sit down and think about it this is not meant to be a plug but like shout out to the night post which is a, like a fiction podcast I, I subscribe to their patreon and they send out like uh like postcards if you're on a certain level and i got one which is like meant to be a scene like on a postcard from the fictional city that it's set in and it had a billboard that said heaven is a place where nothing ever happens and i think about that a lot i think that's a really good description of what's going on here and it kind of hooks back into our discussion of objectivity right because in pure objectivity nothing would happen everything would be defined everything would be known and there wouldn't be room for anybody to deviate from what was known and yeah. There's a scene uh, where Susan is talking about how much she hates the auditors to Lobsang. And she says, the bastards get into your head if you let them. When you find yourself thinking there ought to be a law or I don't make the rules after all. Like that is such a good description of why chaos is needed. Because it's this idea of like, I don't make the rules. I have to do this shitty thing because I don't make the rules instead of thinking about alternatives. Yeah. But like, 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 let me put this to you, like Tessa. Like, imagine if we lived in a world that was purely defined by objectivity, where someone had, like, stepped in and they had taken the ruler out and they had, like, switched on the light so we could see the darkest corners of the universe and, like, find out what was stored in the attic and blah, blah, blah. Like, imagine walking out then and looking up at the night sky and, and just knowing what was out there and knowing that all those stars were there and th having it mean nothing. Like, imagine that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. I think that is what's happening. So profoundly depressing to me. Well, and there's no alternative solutions. There's no unknown, but there's also no disagreement. It's very Borg-like if you haven't seen Star Trek. Um, but the idea of, and the auditors do at times remind me of the Borg, the collective consciousness of the Borg. The idea, like the scene where they fight the auditors and then Susan says, they're watching. Can you fight better than that? And Lobsing says, yes. And she says, good, because they're going to fight as well as you just did. That's very Borg. The Borg learn by observing. And then the next time they'll be just as good as you were. And the fact that it like infects the other horsemen and they have to be like, well, are you thinking yeah. that or are they thinking it for you? Yeah. And that's very Borg-like as well. 
Yeah, and just that description of, like, are they thinking it for you is, like, such an intense way of, like, putting it, like, like describing someone making you afraid or question your belief or be uncertain. There's so many raw lines, especially towards the end of Thief of Time. Like, like the writing is really fantastic. Oh, yeah. Like, the world had run out of horizons. Are They Thinking It For You is also such a great way of explaining, like, propaganda like like it's something like it really like puts into perspective like how dire a threat it is a friend of mine once wrote i don't remember the context that she wrote it in but she wrote the sentence even the flowers are afraid which is just slightly terrifying oh that's what it was remind me of earlier on susan says even the bogeymen have gone to ground like the fact like this is scarier than the thing which is meant to be like objectively unknowably scary is like pure order and reason. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like what Igor was talking about. Like s- absolute sanity is scarier than insanity. What is it? What's it the start of um, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson? No living being can exist under conditions of absolute sanity uh, for yeah. long. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and that's what Miriel Lejean was saying too, right? Like to be human is to be insane. It's to to take in all of these things and somehow make a rational life out of it. So uh, we can't, of course, end our discussion of this without talking about our two sidekick BFFs, Quoth the Raven and the Death of Rats, who are just sort of there in this book, in the background. Yeah. I did love how the Death of Rats is the person who brings the problem to death because of the the butter machine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, do we return to the butter machine at the end as well with Unity? <laughs> Their dynamic just gets better and better, and I'm sad that like this is the last death book. I don't know whether we're going to see them as like the dynamic duo. Like, like when the death of rats gets sucked in, and quote is just like, well, I bet you feel like Mister Silly now. <laughs> and that when is like, please take him away. We don't. Yeah. We don't want him here anymore. <laughs> A lot of it. And especially, like, when Death is talking to the auditors at the end, but, like, the di- the dynamic between Death of Rats and Quoth the Raven reminds me of, like, especially the new series of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, if you've seen it. I haven't. I don't even know anything about this series. Oh, I'd recommend watching it on YouTube, and then you can find it, like, it was aired on the UK on Channel 4. There, There's a moment in the new series, one of the episodes is about Death, and the Crow, the crow character is reading the newspaper and he goes, hmm, well, I'm dead. And they're like, what? And he goes, yep, says here, definitely dead. And then the yellow guy goes, does it say how you died? And he says, yep, says here, I forgot to drink water. Ha! Um, And then the red guy gets like really jealous. And it just reminded me of the way that like death talks to the auditors and quoth talks to the death of rats where he's like, no, does it say anything about us? And then the bird goes, Mm, somebody's jealous, jealous of me being <laughs> dead. And then he said, like, "No, I just think I'm the type of person who would ha- who would happen to me uh, more, like instead of you." <laughs> there are a couple of little references that I did want to to point out and mention, just because they stood out to me. Zeno gets mentioned. Zeno's paradox, right? The the a Phoebean philosopher with the arrow can't catch the tortoise, right? We saw him actually trying to uh, yes. prove that in Small in Gods. In Small Gods. 
So that that is obviously something that has become more famous, and Lejean quotes it to Jeremy in the beginning of the book. When Lutza and Lopsang are traveling to Ankh-Morpork, they pass by Copperhead, which is the mine where Carrot is from. Yes. So, you know, it was just really cool that they mentioned that, that they passed by the dwarf mine. They spend a little time in Lanker, including a very funny moment where they steal a broom. Don't they steal it from Nanny? Yeah. Yeah, that we find out that at later in the book. Because at first I didn't remember it was Nanny, and I was like, oh, who did they steal it from? And I was like, they didn't have problems starting it, so it can't be Granny. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so it's either, but yeah, it it's turns either out they stole from Nanny. Nanny or Perdita. The final thing I wanted to mention, too, unless you can think of anything else, is Q. We get some yeah. James Bond action in this book. It turns out the history monks have a Q who makes their gadgets. And there's this great line where Lutza says, me, Q, and the abbot, we go back a long way, which firmly puts Lutza in the position of Bond because the abbot would clearly be M. Yeah. And also, like, Q gets a lot of the Desmond Llewellyn lines, you know, like, yeah. please try not to break this, Lutza. Yeah, in terms of other things, there was one that I had noticed, uh, and I don't know whether it's a direct reference, but I'm going to like call it like a slightly oblique reference to like another thing, not in Discworld, but... Oh yes, here we are. Vanity, vanity, thought Lutze as the milk cart rattled through the silent city. Ronnie would have been like a god, and people of that stripe don't like hiding. Not really hiding, they like to leave a little clue. Some emerald tab- tablet somewhere, some code in some tomb under the desert. Something to say to the keen researcher, I was here and I was great. Just reminded me of um, Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I am Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty and despair. Oh, absolutely. And I love the idea that, like, chaos is so, like, I'm just a dairyman. I'm just a dairyman. But Lutz is like, he's going to fight me, but he wants me to recognize them. Because people like this, they always want you to. Yeah. So I obviously didn't count the death sightings because this is a death book. I also didn't count the death of rat sightings. There are too many. <laughs> I didn't see any sort sightings. Did you see any mentions of sort? I didn't see any. And I was, surprised, I was surprised that there wasn't any mention of them when they were talking about things being weird with time. Because they were talking about like, like they brought up a lot of Ephebians as well. But no, I'm after right. keyword searching just to double check. No mention of sort, and the only mention of pyramid is in other things Terry Pratchett has written. Disappointing, yeah. The first footnote in this novel, uh, it happens on my page 11, but it's where they're talking about how why the auditors exist and what they're there for, and they're talking about accounting in the universe. So it's, Every atom has its biography, every star its vial, every chemical exchange its equivalent of an inspector with a clipboard. It is unaccounted for because it is doing the accounting for the rest of it, and you cannot see the back of your own head. Footnote, except for in very small universes. I was trying to imagine a small universe where you can see the back of your own head. That's why you keep a photo on you at all times of the back of your head. So you can see it? Yep. And that way then you are untroubled by things in reality. (laughs) what was your favorite footnote in this book my favorite one was when they're talking about how like like there's different groups of people and some people like to shout remember coon valley um which is the (laughs) battle between the dwarves and trolls but then the footnote 
Every society needs a cry like that, but only in a very few do they come out with the complete, unvarnished version, which is, remember the atrocity committed against us last time that will excuse the atrocity that we're about to commit today, and so on. Hurrah! And I can think of a lot of examples to do with that, like, uh, like I don't know, America's retaliation to 9-11, or like... Remember the Alamo? Of, yeah, or even perceived threats where people are stepping up violence against Asian people and Pacific Island, people from Pacific Island nations, because like they blame them for COVID. Like even racism right. would fall under that. Yeah, so it's, it's, both, it's both actual atrocity and perceived atrocity. Yeah. The one that I thought was my favorite footnote was a Matrix reference that happens near the beginning of the book. This is Enlightenment country. Here there are people who know that there is no steel, only the idea of steel. Footnote. But they still use forks, or at least the idea of forks. There may, as the philosopher says, be no spoon, although this begs the question of why there is soup. It's the perfect answer to the there is no spoon line from the matrix which is a i think one of the most famous lines from the matrix i haven't seen the matrix you haven't no which is really funny because this week's episode of hyperfixations is about the matrix <laughs> you should definitely watch it especially because it's a trans metaphor i know yeah, so there's a scene in the original Matrix where a child who is dressed in monk robes says, you know, he's like bending a spoon with his mind and he says, there is no spoon, just the idea of a spoon. And so that's that's what this is referencing. Ah, well, Yuri Geller would beg to differ. The, the Matrix just came out like three years before this, so it's a pretty timely reference for Thief of Time to be making. Yeah. What's something that made you laugh out loud in this book? Uh, I had mentioned the um, auditors trying to appreciate art and like reducing it to its like component molecules, but I did I did have a, a another one, so I can I can have like a surprise to you. It's where they're talking, where War is talking to Death about did he ever consider getting married, and Death is like, no, Death was nonplussed. It was like asking a brick wall what it thought of dentistry as a question. It made no sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah death does not have the uh death is asexual i do not see death ever having any kind of romantic interest a aromantic asexual mm. not interested which by the way i didn't ask you what's your what's your one sentence uh reaction to lopsang and susan's implied romance at the end yeah yeah no, not. I yeah. wanted. I yeah. want to date Susan so badly. So. <laughs> yeah. No. See, like, I am also attracted to Susan, but I don't care mm -hmm. for Susan's relationship with Lobsack. Now, it, I, I understand it invested. makes sense from a, a a character sense, but also like, at the same time, I'm kind of tired of like narratives putting together two people in a relationship because like, the things they went through were similar. It's tacky and kind of like force and you're like oh, okay well i guess you know they can have a relationship without it being romantic they can have a very important relationship without it being romantic just like we talked about with uh Sakharissa and william in the truth it does yeah. kind of feel the same way where it's sort of tacked on at the end i was more invested in the relationship between jeremy and miria lejean than i was yeah. in lopsing and susan's relationship so you know i agree with you actually on this one yeah because, like, it seems to be, like, skewing towards romantic. Like, it's never confirmed. But, like, especially the last line makes it seem like 
it's kind of romantic. In the right. same way that, oh, what was the, the, the female protagonist? Oh, no, sorry, it was Susan. Yeah, it was Susan and her, like, weird, like, relationship with Buddy Holly. Ooh, ooh, I look just like Buddy Holly in soul music. <laughs> I hope this one ends up better. Yeah, I, or, I wish she, like, hears about the fact that he's, like, in the village nearby. Like, like if I had a nickel for every time Terry Pratchett has done that in a death book, I'd have two nickels, which is not a lot, but it's weird it's happened twice. So the thing that made me laugh out loud, and Sam can confirm this because I was reading it the other day, and I just, like, giggled so much. Like, Sam, I was, like, crying. I was laughing so hard, and I don't really understand, but I think it's also because I've been watching a lot of universal horror films, and so everything with Igor was just especially funny to me. But there's a scene where Igor is talking about the clock. Igor didn't much like the clock. He was a people person. He preferred things that bled. And as the clock grew with its shimmering crystal parts that didn't seem entirely all there, so Jeremy grew more absorbed and Igor grew more tense. There was definitely something new happening here. And while Igors were avid to learn new things, there were limits. Igors did not believe in forbidden knowledge and things man was not meant to know. But obviously there were some things man was not meant to know such as what it felt like to have every single particle of your body sucked into a little hole. And that seemed to be one of the options available in the immediate future. (laughs) Just the idea of like things man was not meant to know. Well, obviously there are certain things you don't want to know those things. (laughs) Yeah. Like I don't, I don't think you want to know what it's like to step on the sun barefoot. Yeah, exactly. No, (laughs) like, but I like how it's like, I'm not, Igor isn't saying this in a judgmental way. He's saying it in a, like, factual way. (laughs) Like, it's not a secret that you don't want to know that. That was funny to me. What's something that made you think? Something that made me think, it made me think, like, it made me think, but it also, like, kind of reassured me. Oh, and it's, it's in the section where the auditors are arguing over who they are. Igor Grimace, where his where his baggage was concerned, accountants were probably worse news than lawyers. Gray would be acceptable, said Mr. Green. Nevertheless, you are Mr. Green. We are Mr. Black. It is a matter of status. If that is the case, said Miss White, white is higher status than black. Black is absence of color. The point is valid, said Mr. Black. Therefore, we are now Mr. White. You are now Miss Red. You previously indicated that you were Mr. Black. New information indicates a change of position. This does not indicate incorrectness of said previous position. And, like, I like that, because on the one hand, you could read it as, like, well, you don't have to try and defend your previous positions if you held, like, an ignorant, misinformed one. But at the same time, it's, like, you can view that as, like, being unsure of yourself. And it's, like, well, I thought it was one thing, but now I think I'm a different gender identity or whatever. And it's no less true just because you thought you were something previous. You just now have new knowledge. Although the auditors are probably using that for, like, the silliest reason possible. But yes, I take yeah. your point. <laughs> I yeah, promise absolutely. I won't clear every single one of Terry Pratchett book, no, Terry Pratchett's books. No, I think you just should. I think you should queer Terry Pratchett. I think he would invite that, actually. I think he was trying to queer himself in these books, right? I mean, we can see that in the progression from equal rights to Cherry Littlebottom, right? Um, mm. The way that he was constantly rethinking those depictions of trans people and those depictions of queerness. I mean, I think that was a goal of his. Uh, he And like we've said before, he didn't always get it right, but I think he was trying to queer his own work um, yeah. in the ways that he knew how. 
So I've talked a lot about what made me think, which was the form and function aspect of this book. And so I actually just want to to give you all like a something that kind of hooks into that and kind of hooks into our discussion of objectivity, but also is put a smile on my face, which was at the very end after Lopsang and Lutza have their confrontation in the dojo, right? Like Lopsang as the incarnation of time and Lutza as the sweeper. And, uh, you know, Lopsang offers to give Lutza anything he wants. And Lutza is just like, no, I have everything. And at the very end of that, after Lopsang smiles and vanishes, Lutza went back to his sweeping. After a while, he smiled at the memory. An apprentice gives a gift to the master, A, as if Lutza could want anything that time could give him. And he stopped and looked up and laughed out loud. Overhead swelling as he watched, the cherries were ripening. So we talked before, you said like utopia is actually terrifying because you could you imagine a place that was changeless and you knew everything. The valley where the history monks live exists in this state of eternal springtime, right? And there's several times where Lutza says just once it would be nice to have cherries instead of cherry blossoms. And so the idea that mm. Lutza gives, or that Lopsang gives Lutza the cherries, right? He makes it changeable. He makes it more flexible. He understands that are, there are different ways of being. I think that that's a really interesting visual encapsulation of those ideas that the novel has been exploring the whole time. Yeah. And it's really sweet. Yeah, like the fact that he doesn't do any kind of like, you know, like changing the world thing because he's now that personification of time he just does something like simple yeah and those are the best gifts as we all know yeah simple and meaningful yeah like like if you get something for someone because just because like you think they would like to get it and it's those little moments of joy you know like it's not the big moments necessarily although those are nice too but it's just those little moments of like yeah i'd like some cherries you know and just getting that person some cherries yeah like, you know? it, it makes me think of, and I haven't seen this film, but I've seen the screenshot, everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, he in should watch life, that too. I, in another life, I think I would have liked just doing laundry and taxes with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same reason I get my wife flowers or get her, you know, her favorite ice cream or whatever. It's just, you know, those little moments. Also, sorry, I did just think, I did just think, my wife. My wife. All right, next episode. The Discworld goes multimedia with its first illustrated novel in The Last Hero. Ooh. So we get pictures. It's going to be interesting talking about pictures. Yeah, to be fair, like, there was an illustrated Eric, but, like, did, that came out after The Last Hero, right? They retroactively. I'm excited to talk about The Last Hero. I won't spoil it. I'm not going to say anything. There's a lot that I think you'll really like about it. Okay. Where could people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find my shows everywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm going to like breeze through that because I want to like try and tease something on that front, which is like related to my Twitter currently. So you can mainly find me on Twitter at SpicyNigel, um, where I've been continuing my ongoing countdown until Avatar 2. It's currently 52 days until Avatar 2 comes out. And recently I've been, to I've been doing a bit more Pagliacci posting. You're in her DMs. I am Pagliacci the Clown. <laughs> um, also like it's just i thought this was very funny making a sequel to the big short called the big short two bigger and shorter <laughs> where can we find you tessa online and on our headphones 
You can find me on Twitter and on Storygraph at The By Paradox. I've been keeping track of my Terry Pratchett reading on Storygraph. So if you're on Storygraph, feel free to follow me at The By Paradox. And you can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. That's on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. The door clicked behind her, leaving only the dim light through the transom. She put the chocolate in her mouth and shut her eyes. She was mostly human and partly immortal. It was a difficult trick. It had to do with how you reacted to the universe and how the universe reacted to you. In a way, it was all smoke and mirrors. Or maybe it was really just a matter of assumption. It certainly wasn't a matter of logic. She'd had certain powers and advantages that she would be immortal for as long as she lived. The chocolate outer shell dissolved and her very human senses told her that she had selected a nougat. But she was resolute. Life was tough. Sometimes you've got a nougat. You just have to bite it. A faint, cardboardy sound made her open her eyes. The lids were lifting on the boxes of stars she kept for the children, and the scraps of gold and silver paper were spilling out. They twirled. They moved around her in wheels and spirals. They whirled up into the shadows of the cupboard and hung there, brilliant and beautiful against the darkness, a whole universe in miniature. Susan watched them for a while and then said, All right, you have my full attention, whoever you are. At least, that was what she meant to say. The peculiar stickiness of the nougat caused it to come out as, All right, you up my phone in and whoever you are. Damn. The stars around her head grew brighter and the cupboard's interior darkened into inter- interstellar black. If this is you, Death of Rafts, she began. It's me, said Lobsang. Tick. Even with Nougat, you can have a perfect moment. The end.